friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. Thank you for coming back to Conversations with Consequences week after week. We hope we're giving you great conversations. I know that we have wonderful guests. We'll be talking later on in the show with Archbishop Nauman wrote a wonderful piece in The Leaven, which is a newspaper of the Archdiocese of Kansas City, which was also picked up at the National Catholic Register. If you'd like to read it, I highly recommend it. It's a response um, to what we've been seeing in the Synod of Synodality that the Church is going through, and the way that the Synod is uh, giving a voice and a platform to those people in the Church who think that our religion, and specifically our religion's sexual mores, the ideas around sexuality and chastity, that, um, that our religion is now exclusionary. But first, we'll be talking to, to the delightful Bishop Burbage from Arlington, Virginia, about his recent appointment as the USCCB Pro-Life Committee Chair. Welcome to the show, Bishop Burbage. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Uh, Bishop, great. you've very recently taken up the reins of the USCCB's uh, Pro-Life Committee as chair. And that's a very big undertaking, I think, a very important post, especially in 2023, we are facing, for the first time in so many decades, um, a country where the, the, the question of abortion, of legal abortion, is not absolutely settled from on high, but now has to be attacked in every state and from a very personal level, at a very local level. Uh, so that's a big responsibility, Bishop Burbage. How do you see this moment as, as you take the reins? Yeah, it's a it's a privileged moment for me, very humbling moment uh, to serve in this capacity uh, on behalf of and along with my brother bishops. As you mentioned, it's such a, a critical time in the in life of our, our country. We certainly celebrated uh, the decision of the overturning Roe, but as you highlighted, and it's so important for our, our for our people to remember, is that abortion is still legalized uh, throughout our country. Uh, but the the good news with the Dobbs uh, decision is that um, it's back. The, the the responsibility of protecting the unborn is back to where it should always be uh, with this the people with the people and the officials we elect on the local level. And so, as I have often said, uh, our work is only just beginning. It's just beginning. And uh, with a clearer focus, uh, certainly on the national level, of course, that's why I was so happy to see so many people at the National March for Life in D.C. And equally as happy uh, to see so many people uh, last week in in, in, in Richmond and in, here in Virginia, because in the Commonwealth, in the state, uh, we need to change uh, the hearts of our elected officials and God willing to protect uh, people who who uh, the unborn. 
Uh, Bishop Burbage, let's go back for a minute. You just mentioned the March for Life, where we all were uh, just about two weeks ago. What a historic march, the first one since the fall of Roe v. Wade. And you were privileged to celebrate the Mass the night before at the National Shrine, uh, at the Vigil Mass. And during your homily, you pointed out really this just incredible time that we're living in post-Roe. And you called it a moment of joy. You said this is a moment for joy and for gratitude, a moment to recall the countless souls who have dedicated themselves to political and social action, to prayer and service in the name of this cause. And you talked about how there is much work to be done. So where do we start? Yeah, thanks, Maureen. But first of all, uh, thank you for uh, highlighting that uh, particular section of the homily, because it was a moment to pause, uh, to remember all the people who have gone before us uh, since Roe became the law of the land, who persevered uh, through uh, praying outside of abortion clinics, witnessing, uh, offering advocacy year after year after year. And, you know, many of them have been called home to God, some of our own loved ones. Um, and just to rejoice in that, knowing that all those uh, that dedication to prayer and witnessing uh, God has, has as he always promises will bring to fruit good fruit uh, and so just just a moment to honor all those people and now the best way we can honor them is to continue their work um, and nothing really has changed it's still all about prayer advocacy and witnessing my 15 year old daughter uh, Bishop was one of the, uh, the young people at that mass and at the March for life she traveled up. Uh, with her school, with the entire Archdiocese uh, group of lots of different high schools across across our town of uh, of Miami, my Archdiocese of Miami, yeah. and it was it was a fabulous experience. She came home full of fire, full of excitement for the struggle ahead, which, as you said, is a struggle um, that was that's been that's been put in the in the laps of the youth by the people that came before and who has struggled so hard for so many decades to get rid of Roe v. Wade, and finally we succeeded. But now the young people, that's they're the people who are going to carry that banner forward. How do you see uh, the young people of America, how do you see our chances with them um, of turning them into a pro-life generation? Well, I was so inspired, uh, both in the uh, nation's capital and in and, and our Virginia capital, to see that so many of the people were our young people. And you wondered like how our elected officials uh, uh, witnessed that. It's like, wow, this is a whole generation of, of young people who who understand this, this truth, this reality, uh, that the life is should be cherished and protected. The one a reporter asked me on the day of the march is like, Bishop, what is your hope uh, for all these young people uh, that you see gathered here today. And basically, I, I said what your daughter experienced. I said, I hope they go home realizing that they're not alone. Because many of them, I'm sure, in their own high schools and their own communities, when they take this position of you know pro-woman, pro-child, we love both, um, they pay a price for that. Mm -hmm. And they often get labeled and ridiculed, even rejected. I, I mean, the young people tell me about this. So I was so happy when they saw so many of their peers in thousands 
uh, all together, people who share the same beliefs and moral convictions. And I, I think it's probably one of the reasons your daughter came home so energized. And they're the it's, cool kids. Oh, not alone. Right. You, know, yeah. you look out cool oh, across kids. these um, yeah. the sea they're of the faces leaders. and they're the yeah. cool kids. They're the leaders. They're the they're the young people who dare to swim upstream and dare to be rebels. Like young people ought to be rebels, right? Like that rebellious spirit towards good. That's something that God put in, puts into young people so that they can make the world a better place. And that's exactly, exactly who was at the march. Exactly. And I think anyone who's never been to the March for Life, either the March for Life in Washington or now uh, at the state marches, which are growing in importance. If, if any of our listeners have never been to one of the marches, I think that's something that w one would have no idea how it's just a sea of young people. And it's a very joyful experience somehow in the midst of contemplating the suffering surrounding abortion, there's so much joy. Um, and, and speaking of, uh, of, of mothers and babies, one of the most exciting initiatives looking to the work ahead uh, is an initiative that came from the Bishop's office. Um, and we wanted to ask you about that, this program called Walking with Moms in Need. And we've had uh, some of the people who are working on that program on our show before, but we would we would love to hear from you how you envision this program of walking with moms in need, how you envision that growing in our parishes across the country. Could you kind of explain the program to our listeners and um, let them know how they might get involved? Yeah, thank you, Maureen. Thanks for highlighting that. And as you said, this is a, a parish-based uh, process uh, that helps parishioners connect uh, with local moms, moms in their own community facing uh, difficult or, or challenging pregnancies, uh, identifying local resources, and filling the gaps so that pregnant and parenting women receive the material, uh, the spiritual, the emotional support they need. Uh, so we stand ready to continue loving and serving uh, all expectant families. And, and so it's it, it, the goal, God willing, is for uh, mothers in need to realize that their abortion does not need to be their choice because we're here to walk with you, to stand with you so that you can bring life into the world. What do you need? Do you need uh, some prenatal care that maybe you can't afford? We can help to provide that. Uh, we can provide through uh, the Gabriel Project, uh, the cribs and the food and the diapers and everything that you may need uh, for your child. Maybe you need some counseling to go through this pregnancy. Well, through our Catholic charities, we can we can help provide that too. So the physical, the spiritual, the emotional needs, we will walk with you. We will accompany you. And I think, Maureen, in, 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 a, in a really, it's very important. I, I'm learning in my own diocese that... Um, some people, very engaged Catholics, do not know the, the countless ways that the church walks with women, that we say yes to life. Um, and I think we have to do, and, and we've tried to do this in my diocese the last month or so, just giving people uh, the, that sense, here are the ministries, here's what we do as a Catholic church. We do it for God, we do it for service of his people, but we have to share this with others. And we're finding out that when we talk about things like this, even it opens a window, it opens a door to people who disagree with us, including elected, official, including elected officials. Um, and so last week in Richmond, for example, many of our people were engaged 
in talking to officials and their chiefs of staff who who disagree with us. But they said, well, can we tell you, will you at least listen to, to some of our ministries that we want? And they were shocked. So I didn't know the Catholic Church did all that. So as we try not only to transform laws, but to transform hearts, we have to be talking about the wonderful opportunities people can be involved in walking with moms in need. And this program, uh, Bishop, that you that you mentioned, um, if, if some of our listeners are, are listening and they're saying, well, I, I've never heard of this or they're not doing this at my parish. How can our listeners um, get this get this going at their parish? What's the next step for people like that who are excited yeah. to walk with moms in need? Right. And so I, the easiest way is to contact your local uh, priest. And uh, and I think they would have that certainly on diocesan websites, uh, the Catholic charities uh, would, would be in, in marriage and family life offices and also through the USCCB's website. Um, it, it's so crucial. We we know that, that, you know, pretty much every woman walking into an abortion clinic doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to be aborting her child, but it's out of desperation that they walk through those clinic doors. And I just saw um, research that 60% of women actually feel pressured and coerced into abortion, either by their parents, sadly, for young girls or or from a boyfriend or an employer even. Um, so this Walking with Moms in Need program is, is incredibly important. And I know one component of that is promoting adoption. Can you mm-hmm. talk to us, um, Bishop Burbage, about the church's efforts to promote adoption? Yeah, that's always been such a beautiful ministry, um, you know, working in dioceses through the Catholic Charities uh, offices usually. And um you know, there are, there are, there are many uh, wonderful people uh, who want to open their hearts and their homes and their very lives uh, to welcome a child uh, through uh, adoption. And for, for mothers and fathers who uh, certainly want to bring life into the world but do not feel they have uh, the ability or capability at this time, there are loving, loving people who want to welcome this child and to give a safe and and loving protection to be beautiful adoptive families. And uh, we have seen so many beautiful stories lived out that way. Um, and, and the gratitude of children uh, to both their mothers and fathers and to those who adopted them. So uh, most definitely, uh, and, and Catholic Charities has a uh, just a beautiful process of, uh, of engaging uh, both the parents of the child and those who would be uh, considered the you know uh, those who would be adoptive uh, parents and and try to form that that sense of a, a relationship and uh, so it's it's a great way to say yes to life and walking with moms in need I, as I meant to give you is www.walkingwithmoms.com is another quick way to get it there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess and TCA colleague Maureen Ferguson, and we're talking to the delightful Bishop Burbage from Arlington, Virginia, about his recent appointment as the USCCB Pro-Life Committee Chair. How, uh, Bishop, how did your life lead you to this? Were, was was pro- the being were pro-life activities already? Um, a big part of your life and you're happy to be the chair or is this does this land on you out of out of nowhere and you're trying to catch up no i i hope uh i i hope uh, uh 
others recognize my my great commitment uh to to life and protecting and cherishing it uh goes way back actually as a, as a high school student uh you know when roe versus wade uh, the decision was made and fortunately i had great uh priests uh mentors and teachers in my high school who really helped the students realize uh what was at stake here and so from the very beginning uh encouraged this advocacy on behalf of life this courageous witness and you know Thank the good Lord uh, through examples like that. And through my time as a seminarian, I don't think I ever missed the March for Life. Uh, it's always been my uh, part of my ministry as a priest and as a bishop. Uh, and so to have this position uh, is just a, a great honor. And do you feel, or maybe you can tell us how you feel that being pro-life is also being pro-woman? Because I think that many critics of the Catholic Church and many critics of the pro-life position um, don't aren't able to make that connection that seems so clear to so many of us. I know, and when we say we're we're pro-life, we mean life at every stage, at every stage, in every moment. Child, mother, father, men, women, young, old. So that's a beautiful. As Maureen said, we we have a joyful spirit about us because we have the truth. All of life is sacred. And we're consistent in uplifting it and protecting it and defending it and cherishing it. And so necessarily, you can't separate it. If you're pro-life, you're pro-life for the child, for the mother, for the father, for the elderly, uh, for those with uh, physical and emotional disabilities. There's a consistency. That's the gospel of life. That's the mandate that we're, we're called to live. And And when the tragic choice of abortion is made, the church is also there to walk with women towards forgiveness and to show God's mercy. And I think that's always such an important part of the church to to highlight as well the ministry of Project Rachel. And I know the Sisters of Life have these post-abortion healing retreats. Um, Can you talk to us about about that angle, uh, Bishop Burbage? Yeah, Maureen, and thanks. It's, again, showing the consistency of our desire to walk uh, with those who are in need of, of healing and, and uh, uh, growth uh, in, in their lives. Uh, Project Rachel is is one of the most powerful ministries uh, with which I've ever been associated. Uh, we know that mothers and fathers who choose abortion mourn, mourn the death of the child uh, lost to abortion and have gone and go experience significant trauma that's why we who love women uh speak against abortion because we do love women and we know uh the horrific damage it causes emotionally and physically in project uh, rachel we are simply trying to be instruments of god's love and mercy because there is no failure there is no sin there's no miss you know there's no there's nothing greater than his mercy than his love and it's it's to those who are suffering guilt or or shame or or trauma that the lord wants to embrace and through beautiful retreats loving uh people present and certainly with the respect of confidentiality uh project rachel uh is is an instrument i believe clearly of the lord's healing love for his people Bishop, very recently we we watched the State of the Union address. Um, I'm sorry, I'm making a hard shift to politics real fast. Um, but I think it's important because as Americans were gathered around their TVs, maybe not so many of them, it was a very popular address, but people are um, watching recaps. And it's, what's very sad is that many politicians were wearing pins that glorified abortion. 
They said, I love abortion. And uh, just pins that said abortion. Um, there's been a huge shift in this country from um, people who were who are who call themselves pro-choice saying, well, it should be safe, legal and rare. That's that that used to be the saying. And now people are wearing pins that say abortion. Some of these people, these politicians that that I wish we could all look up to, uh, some of them are Catholic and and are wearing pins and are glorifying abortion as as the head of the USCCB's pro-life uh, committee, as the chair how can the church help um, politicians, especially especially Catholic politicians, walk back their 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 glorifying of this of this horrible tragedy that is abortion? Well, you're right. I mean, it was so disturbing, so unsettling uh, to listen to a segment of the uh, State of the Union. Uh, you know, aggressively saying we need to enshrine laws, you know, that for legal abortion. That in itself was just so unsettling, but. I saw the same pins you did, mm-hmm. and and that was equally as stunning. Uh, we love abortion. <laughs> we love abortion, the destruction of a human life, physical, emotional suffering caused to women. We love we love something so destructive and something hor- horrific. It, that extreme position, it's just it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But that it really it really just stunned me. I still can't get that image. Um, out of of my mind um and so i I think you know uh, we do have a a responsibility uh as pastors as bishops um to engage uh people uh who are catholic who profess their faith and yet take this extreme position which is against the gospel the man the mandate uh, of the gospel the gospel of life and so you know, what you try to do is you try to take them back. These are these are men and women who were formed in the Catholic faith. So they have the teaching uh, and they were formed correctly through their Catholic education and Catholic faith formation. And they know what is right and true. And so you try to take them back to that. Um, but, you know, and, and you do that behind the scenes as much as possible. But the the most powerful thing I try to say as a pastor, especially to those who have such a great opportunity to protect life, is, you know, maybe you're not accountable to me, but these are God's children. And in the end, we're all going to die. And we're all going to stand before the Lord, every one of us, no matter what our vocation or, 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 you know, position in life. And we're going to be asked, I believe by the Lord, what did you do to protect or not do to protect my children. So your salvation, your soul's at stake here. God's loving and merciful, but he's gonna ask you that question. And and we're all accountable to God. It's very sobering uh, and beautifully stated. Um, I'm gonna pivot again here because in addition to being the head of the pro-life committee for the bishops, you also have a day job. You're the the shepherd for the (laughs) diocese of Arlington and When I uh, met with you recently, you gave me a booklet that you've published called 33 Spiritual Reflections for for Daily Living. And I really want to recommend this to our listeners because I really found it very moving and inspiring. And if you don't mind, I would like to pull just a few of those out and read them to our listeners and ask for your comment on them Um, because I think they're so timely. So one that really struck me, it says, and we like Martha anxious, or no, I'm sorry, are we like Martha, anxious and worried about many things 
If so, maybe the Lord is asking us to slow down and like Mary, to be still and reflective as we sit at the feet of Jesus. So Bishop, we do live in very unsettling times and not just in politics, but in the church even at times. And um, so what advice do you have for us on this point? How can we be still and sit at the feet of Jesus? Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful lesson, isn't it? Um, between doing and being. And I always say, notice that Jesus didn't say to Martha, stop the doing, right? Because he wants us to do good work, to be faithful to our sacred duties. Uh, but nothing is the highest priority than being because it's at the feet of Jesus that we find the strength for the doing. And so the greatest gift a parent can give to uh, uh, their children or spouse, or, or a spouse can give to a spouse, or a, a bishop can give to his diocese or priest's parish, is not just the doing, it's that time that we spend with the Lord, because that's when we're nourished and sustained so that we might continue to serve and to do. And so uh, it's just a beautiful, that, that story is, is always a powerful one for me, because we all, myself included, believe me, uh, trying to have that, that balance between doing and being, making sure the being is the highest priority. Maybe I'll just read one more point from your booklet here. Um, this is on the doing. In the midst of the evil we see around us, St. Catherine of Siena tells us not to stand still. Instead, she says, start being brave about everything. Drive out darkness and spread light. Don't look upon your weaknesses. Realize that in Christ crucified, you can do everything. So tell us, how can we be brave and spread light. I love the em emphasis on spreading light. And that's uh, really was the gospel that we just heard this past week. Uh, the Lord sent his disciples. He sends us out. He acknowledges into a world of darkness. And he asks us to radiate his light through our faithfulness, through our integrity, through our service, uh, love of God. Uh, but it's so important to remember we are not the light. We're not the light. Christ is. He's the light who has conquered the darkness. So we go forth in his name and with his strength, only trying to radiate his presence. Well, thank you, uh, Your Excellency, for spending this time in conversation with us, for spreading the light to us and to our listeners, and for especially for uh, carving out this bit of time from your extremely busy day. Uh, to to illuminate us. Thank you, Your Excellency. Well, thank you, uh, Gracie. Thank you, Maureen, for your beautiful ministry, how you share the good news. It's really an honor to be with you and to be with your listeners. Thanks. To learn thank more you about, so much for joining us. To learn more about Bishop Burbage's work, please visit usccb.org. And for more information about Walking with Moms in Need, please visit walkingwithmoms.com. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for sticking with us through the break. 
Next up, another Archbishop, this time Archbishop Nauman of Kansas City. Archbishop Nauman wrote a wonderful piece in The Leaven, which is the newspaper of the Archdiocese of Kansas City, which was also picked up at the National Catholic Register. If you'd like to read it, I highly recommend it. It's a response to what we've been seeing in the Synod of Synodality that the Church is going through, and the way that the Synod is giving a voice and a platform to those people in the church who think that our religion, and specifically our religion's sexual mores, the ideas around sexuality and chastity, that, um, that our religion is now exclusionary, that it specifically excludes in a way that is marginalizing and wrong people who, who don't have heterosexual inclinations um, and who live a non-heterosexual lifestyle and act on that. Um, Archbishop Nauman has specifically named Cardinal McElroy of San Diego, who wrote a very complicated piece in the Jesuit journal America about how exactly the Synod is pointing out this, what he calls a flaw in the Catholic Church of, of marginalization and making people, especially in the sexual department, who are divorced and remarried, for instance, or members of um, the non-heterosexual group, making them feel excluded and marginalized specifically, and he mentions it, not being allowed to go to, to take communion, to take part in the, in the Eucharist. Welcome to the show, Archbishop Nauman. Thanks very much, Gracie. Good to be with you and your listeners. Well, it's good to be with you, uh, Your Excellency, and especially because we, uh, I think many of us out there sitting in the pews, just regular churchgoers who love the church, who, who love what the church presents to the world as salvific truth, as, as a way for men and women to flourish truly in this life, and of course to have life eternal. There are voices in the church um, that, are, that are getting more and more, uh, like I think getting better platforms and higher platforms that don't experience the, the church's teaching that way. Uh, the teachings that way, especially um, of, on the sexual morality front. You, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you you wrote this wonderful piece in The Leaven, uh, where you attack this idea head on. So we wanted to to have you on. Tell us, uh, Archbishop, the Synod, the Synod on Synodality, which is taking place now, has riled up uh, a lot of, uh, has given a platform again to some of these voices. Where do you think that they are going wrong, in essence? Well, you know, I think Pope Francis has been clear that the Senate's not about voting on doctrine and moral teaching, um, and and yet there are voices that are out there, I think, trying to do precisely that. And um, you know, I think the the whole process of listening, of being a more listening church, which I think Pope Francis uh, desires us to be, I think that's a very good thing. And you know. I, I think from the process that we did here in the archdiocese, there there were fruitful and good things coming from that. But um, the the way it's been orchestrated, though, was not just to talk to people within the church, but outside the church, and um, which again, I mean, I think it's good for the church for us to understand what others are saying. But I don't think we should be surprised that the church is always going to be countercultural and um and but there seem to be an influential voices within the church and, and which i mentioned in the article uh that are actually 
I think, uh, suggesting that we change our moral teaching and that this is uh, part of what the Synod is to accomplish. And you have the example of the German bishops and the synodal way, which, um, again, is calling into question some fundamental moral teaching. And and even um, uh, the cardinal that's been chosen to be um, the the relator, the uh, one of the most influential people at the Senate, he's called into question the our very teaching about homosexual activity. So uh, I just feel, as a bishop, I have a responsibility to uh, to speak the truth, and especially in these areas which seem to me to be um, going against what Pope Francis called the Senate for, and also really confusing people. And as I mentioned in the article, I, I, I came of age in the 1960s. Um, it was a time similar in some ways to this time, I think, and there there was a lot of moral confusion uh, that came out of that, and unfortunately it crept into the Church at that time. And, um, you know, I think Pope John Paul uh, Pope Benedict and now Pope Francis have tried to correct <clears throat> that and be clear on our moral teaching. Uh, I, I don't think we serve our people well or, or the world well if we simply echo the voices of the culture and not the the truth that the Church has been entrusted with. Your Excellency, um, young people these days, they're bombarded from birth with this idea that, as they say popularly, love is love. And that love, uh, homosexual um, acts, are just another kind of sexual expression, another kind of love expression. Um, And that, uh, you know, ideas about that being a different kind of love uh, or sexual expression that should be should be you know can't can't be in the same camp with heterosexual sexual expression is just outmoded and traditional ideas that have been superseded by sociological and and scientific advancements that we've had in the in the present. Um, so one you you mentioned in your article, Cardinal Hollerich of Luxembourg, who who says just that. What? Why is he wrong? Why? Why haven't we, you know, come to a, a new understanding of sexuality that that puts aside those old strictures? You know, and Gracie, I think that this is one of the big confusions. Um, this love is love. Well, um, we all need love. We all need friendship, <laughs> and 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 so that's that's critical, and that's something God desires for us. But. When you confuse that and say, "Well, that means every type of sexual expression um, that that's love," it really isn't, and, and it doesn't just apply to the homosexual community. We, the heterosexual community, um, also with the hookup culture and mm-hmm. uh, uh, many of the, you know, I think the the misuse of our human sexuality, and so the church has to be a voice for that. And you know, I I'm not sure what he what Cardinal Holerich is referring to when he says uh, that there's sociological data that makes the church's teaching outdated. Um, you know, part of the problem with homosexual activity is our bodies weren't designed for it, mm-hmm. and you know um, we've we've been in denial, I think, of this, and 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 yet we see we saw 
with the AIDS epidemic, there are consequences when we use our bodies in ways that they were never intended to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we've seen it, I think, more recently with this monkeypox. Um, but we we're, we act like um, human uh, the, the human body tells us, and that, that's why I think what. Pope John Paul spoke about the theology of the body and how the body itself has its own language. Um, so I, I think we have to have a great empathy for people with same-sex attraction. Um, they need friendship and authentic love, but that doesn't mean every form of uh, sexual expression is is valid or good or healthy. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I think that scientifically, it, it, everything is backed up by that, right? I mean, what promiscuity, uh, which is another ill <laughs> ill advised form of sexual expression, um, and wrong also, is uh, is uh, leads to terrible sexually transmitted diseases, and 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 all sorts of other problems. And those things are sociologically proven. Um, so yes, I agree with you that those things haven't changed just because we are more modern people. Um, another thing, another person that you bring up is Cardinal McElroy uh, of San Diego, and, and, and he wrote in, in the journal, in the Jesuit journal America, um, about the way that he feels that these are sexual moral principles uh, of Catholicism, of Christianity, are exclusionary, and that the sin of, of these sexual, uh, these sexual sins are no different from any other sin that people commit, and, and to deny uh, the Eucharist, for instance, to to people who are in an established same-sex relationship, or or a men and women who have um, divorced and remarried outside of the church, or or just civilly married, is is denying them the grace of the Eucharist, that the grace of the sacrament that could help them, you know, grow out of this uh, this re- these relationships, or or simply that they're not more sinful than anyone else who presents themselves for the Eucharist. Um, what's your answer to that, uh, Your Excellency? Well, uh, you know, I think the the reception of the Eucharist, uh, as it's always been understood, it, it's yes, it, it's receiving the living Christ, which we all need, and we're all sinners. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but it's also the reception of the Eucharist is uh, an act of faith in the Church itself, who presents the Eucharist to us, and uh, there are certain um, moral teachings. If we, if we disagree fundamentally with some of the church's teaching, uh, the very reception of communion becomes a lie, uh, and and it's it's not true. It's not authentic on our part, um, and it's not just you know this isn't just confined to sexual sins. But um, so yes, the, the the it's true that the Eucharist is a uh, a medicine for for sinners, but it it also is this acknowledgement that we accept who Jesus Christ is and the Church, um, and if we fundamentally uh, disagree with the central teaching, um, then really we can't receive the the Eucharist with authenticity. Uh, and you know, I think um, I think one of the errors I believe in Cardinal McElroy's is like these sexual sins are, they're just inconsequential. Uh, they just affect the person. No, I mean, the, um, the results of the 
sexual revolution and the casualties of it are all around us. Uh, but we're in denial of it because it attacks uh, the family. It attacks the covenant of marriage. It, it, it denies uh, the importance of that. And it denies an essential part of our human sexual expression, which is its life-giving potential. Um, so these are these are very serious things, and they have effect beyond just the individual. You know, I'm glad you brought up uh, this uh, the the side effects. No, that the terrible consequences of the sexual revolution. Because last week the CDC released uh, an extremely troubling assessment of the mental health of young people. Um, sky sky high and and rising suicide rates uh, among boys and girls and especially teens um, and and just just terrible mental health uh, children in crisis all over the country and they made a special emphasis in saying that uh, children uh, young people who don't consider themselves heterosexual um, are are especially um, suffering uh, mental health problems. And they, the CDC, recommended that um, what the schools ought to do and what people ought to do is be more accepting and more encouraging of these of these lifestyles. So it, it seems almost uh, like what's happening in in the with the CDC is what's happening with us amongst amongst Catholics. I mean, here's the question: You have the casualties of the sexual revolution, the young people um, suffering more and more each day, and what some people in the church would like us to offer them is what the CDC offers them, which is more sexual revolution, like more sexual openness and less guardrails. When I believe, and I think you believe that um, what young people need are, are more guardrails that lead them safely into a flourishing human future and, and, and yeah. an eternal future. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, if, if, I mean, the, the big lie in the culture is that you have to be sexually active to be happy and to fu be fulfilled. And yet we see the, that that's not true all around us. If that were true, we should be the happiest culture and in, in, in civilization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet all of this data is telling us it's not making us happy. And, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think our public health officials have really failed us in a great way. Um, you know, look at what they did in terms of COVID. And they, they required young people, and this is part of the reason we have record levels of depression is we, we isolated young people and told them they couldn't even have social contact. But but when it came to AIDS, uh, where human lives were at risk, they didn't, they, they thought it was impossible to ask people not to be sexually active, mm -hmm. even though they knew it could be lethal. So I, I think our public health officials, um, they bought into the cultural lie, and they're really not advising us well do you think um that do you think that the that the synod on synodality uh, do, are we at risk for having a real doctrinal revolution because when i read um cardinal McElroy's piece um and when i read your response i i, I think that seems to be there like the possibility of of, of a real doctrinal shift where where the these sexual mores that that are, that are designed to keep us safe and flourishing and and building our families could be up for grabs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I rest in the confidence that the Holy Spirit is <laughs> is in charge of the church and and won't allow us to go into fundamental error. But that's why I think it's important um, for for voices to to speak out. Um, 
you know, I think what the German bishops have been doing is very troubling, and I'm glad that bishops throughout the world have really, um, you know, challenged them on some of the, the the things that they're promoting out of their synodal way. And I and I think that bishops, I mean, we don't like to uh, we don't like to disagree publicly, but um, these are public statements that are being said, and I think. From my point of view, and I think um, many of the American bishops would agree with this, this is, this is uh, erroneous. And again, it doesn't, it, from what Pope Francis has said about his desires for the Synod, it doesn't correspond to what he has desired for the Synod to be. Well, I think that um, it behoves all of us Catholics to pray very hard that the Synod on Synodality lands in the right place and, and, and we, we actually do listen to the Holy Spirit and as a church and, and all the bishops do, the cardinals, and, and get us to the right spot. So thank you so much, Archbishop Nauman, for, for joining us and, and thank you for your wise words and, and your guidance and caution. And to our listeners, um, please read his piece in The Leaven, which is a newspaper of the Archdiocese of Kansas City or at the National Catholic Register. Thank you, Your Excellency. Thanks, Gracie. God bless. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday as Jesus takes us further into his famous Sermon on the Mount. As we've been pondering the last few weeks, Jesus has been calling us as his disciples to live by his standards, not the standards of others. Last week he told us that a relationship with God must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, who are the most religiously observant Jews. This Sunday, he tells us that we need to do better than the tax collectors who love those who love them, than the upright Gentiles who greet and do good to those who greet and do good to them. He calls us to live by God the Father's standards, which he himself personifies. Jesus puts an exclamation point on this calling this Sunday. Therefore, he tells us, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Many people, when they hear this, are thrown off by the way perfect and think that this is an unachievable standard because after all, none of us is perfect. None of us will ever be perfect. And therefore, if God is calling us never to make a mistake, then he's obviously calling us to something beyond human capacity. So we feel justified in dismissing what Jesus says as if it's clearly impossible. But before we ignore what Jesus is calling us to do, as if he couldn't possibly have meant it, we should focus on a couple things. First, the main emphasis of what Jesus is saying is, be like your heavenly Father. Early in the passage, he gives a specific exhortation so that we may be children of our heavenly Father, who makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus implies that we will not really become children of God until we start behaving like God, that he can be our Father without our being his children unless we experience the inner revolution to which Jesus is calling us, and unless we seek to act as God's children, to behave like Jesus who shows us how to live as a son or daughter of God. 
Just as God the Father loves everyone and does good to everyone, including those who curse him, including those who make themselves his enemy through sin and an evil life, including those who try to use him whenever they need him. Jesus calls us to do the same, like God, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to walk the second mile, to give our cloak as well as our tunic, to give generously to all who need to borrow. We're called to be good, to let our sun or life-giving rain fall, not just on those who are good to us, but even on those who are not good to us, just like the Father does. This is the path of true holiness, Jesus implies. This is the means by which we will become, in action, sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father by behaving as He behaves. The second thing to note is that to understand what Jesus means when He calls us to be perfect like our Father in Heaven, we have to grasp the Greek word St. Matthew employs. The Greek word is teleos, which is the adjective that comes from the noun telos, which means end or goal. Teleos means fit to achieve its end or purpose. A hammer, for example, is teleos for pounding in a nail. A student is teleos when he's mastered the material, lives it, and teaches it to others. When Jesus calls us, in fact commands us, to be teleos as our Heavenly Father is teleos, he's not intending that we engage in a type of errorless or sinless perfectionist striving for the unattainable that will destroy our spiritual, psychological, and physical life. Rather, he's summoning us to order our life to the same purpose and same goal as God the Father, to mature to full stature, to achieve the end for which we were made, which is to be fully in the image and likeness of God, to be holy as God is holy, to love like God loves, to be merciful as he is merciful, to behave truly as children of our Father. In order to achieve this Christian perfection, God doesn't leave us on our own, but gives us all the help he knows we need. Everything in our Christian life is meant to help us to become teleos. The sacraments are meant to help us come to perfection by assisting us from within to become more and more like the one we encounter in the sacraments, Jesus, who feeds us with himself, who forgives us our sins, who fills us with the Holy Spirit, who conforms us to himself, who joins us in one flesh with another to become a true communion of persons in marriage and family, resembling the Trinitarian interpersonal communion, and who helps us unite our sufferings to his. The word of God is meant to help us to become teleos by imparting to us God's wisdom and showing us the true path to love like he loves. Prayer is meant to help us to become teleos by helping us to think as God thinks rather than the way everybody else thinks, to help us say and desire that God's will be done rather than our own. Our daily life, including our sufferings, is meant to help us to become teleos. This means that when someone slaps us on the cheek or begs from us or hates or persecutes us or makes himself our enemy, all of this can be used by God to bring us to perfection. This was the path God the Father used to perfect Jesus according to his humanity. As the letter of the Hebrews tells us, although he was son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being perfected, became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. To become teleos, however, we need to follow Jesus, not just partially, not just as a distance, not just picking and choosing the parts of his teaching that don't require radical change on our part, but up close, fully, wholeheartedly. The entire Sermon on the Mount, as we see in the Beatitudes, is meant to lead us to true happiness, to true spiritual perfection as God's sons and daughters. We need, however, not just to hear Jesus' message, but to believe it, embrace it, and put it into practice. We need to give God permission to do in us what he wishes to do in order to sculpt us into his holy image. Just like any father or mother wants to raise a child to fulfill all or his 
all of his or her potential. God wants to raise us to fulfill all the potential with which he's created us. To be holy like he's holy. To lay us as he's to lay us fully human and more and more divine. There are some Christians who want to pretend that there has to be another way. That we can still please God, live a good Christian life and get to heaven without taking Jesus' words seriously and literally. Some want to believe that as long as we do a few good deeds, come to Mass, pray a little each day, give something to the poor, that that's all God wants and demands of us. That we can live by the same standards by which everybody else lives too. Rather than striving for sanctity, some believe that if someone takes something from us, we're justified in taking his eye or his stew. We're perfectly okay in slapping someone back who slaps us first. We're fine in loving only those who think whom we think deserve our love, being generous only to those whom we trust, and vanquishing our enemy before our enemy vanquishes us. This Sunday, Jesus helps us to recognize that such a path is not the way to human fulfillment, happiness, and heaven. His path is, and he calls us to follow him on it with all our heart. As we prepare for the beginning of Lent in four days, we can focus on how Lent is meant to help us become teleos, it's meant to unite us to Jesus in his 40 days in the desert, in his prayer, in his fasting, in his almsgiving, so that we can become, together with him, the image of the Father. Jesus will tell us on Ash Wednesday, when you pray, when you give alms, and when you fast, not to do so for the crowds, but for the Father who sees in secret and will always reward. Lent is about making us ever more children of the Father, who live for the Father, for the Father's name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done. Lent is ultimately about holiness as we turn away from everything by which we do not live as beloved children of the Father and begin to believe and live the gospel. As we strive with God's help to live the best Lent of our life this year, we rejoice to have a chance to pray that we might live up to the reality of our having become God's sons and daughters in, through baptism, to fast so that we may hunger for what God hungers, to give of ourselves and our gifts not only to those who do good to us, but like God even to those who do not. The holy season of Lent and the whole Christian life are a school in which God tries to help us day by day become like him, to become perfect, fit, apt, ultimately to share eternal communion with him and with all the saints. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God give us the grace to become like him. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 